good to see all of your wonderful faces behind the bright shining lights and uh, good to be here this morning. I couldn't help but notice when I came in that one of my pastors and my mentors, Bill and Elaine Button are here and I just want to say hello and thank you. I know every time you guys go it's probably like here they go again pointing us out and you want to be a citizen but uh, they oversee the development of pastors, which means that when you're going through a situation, you might come to us or to the counselors on staff. When we are going through things, we're going to them and talking through discouragements or working through problems or celebrating joys. And uh, one of the great honors I had was leading them on a trip to Israel uh, where all of the people in that, in that level, the presbytery went. And uh, for those of you that are signed up for the Israel trip, by now you've gotten the email, but um, this is one of those seasons where nothing's really fully in my control or your control. And so uh, we put it, we're aiming for October, or the first week of October, or the first week of November 2021, so that we can be through a good burn of COVID. And uh, if it was up to me, COVID would be gone. But for some reason, you know, it's just not happening. And so in the meantime, I want to say thank you for wearing your masks. Um, that's according to a state regulation and so uh, the governor doesn't wear one when he speaks so we figure we'll follow suit but my prayer is is that uh, while we social distance we wouldn't spiritual distance and uh, that while we take maybe a break from the conventions of of what church is that we would we would actually ramp up and close the distance of spiritual uh, closeness and nearness to God it's interesting the way that the book of James places it he says draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It's almost like God saying, make a move. I'm ready, I'm ready. And I'm so grateful that we serve a God that when my step might only be that, he can step clear across the universe and clear over my problems and bring himself to bear into our situations. How many of you could use Jesus in the center of your life right now? Yeah, it's yours. And so Lord, right now we turn to you. We turn to you in your word and we turn to you in our prayers here this morning. We ask that you would walk into the room like we were praying this, this morning. Your word is living and active. It's, it's breathed by you. It's not just a typical word. Lord, everything that I say that's of me, let it fall to ash to the ground, but let your word accomplish what you sent it to do. And we give you glory for what you're gonna speak into our lives to close the distance as we take a step towards you and we hear your word. I pray that you would take a step towards us by the power of your spirit and that this week will be one of that was just different from any other one we've experienced since March 19th and COVID-19 kind of took seeming control. We just give you all the glory. We keep none of it for ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it is Missions Month, and it's one of the most unconventional Missions Months that we've ever had. And we are believing God for $90,000 so that we can send missionaries like Joel and Adrian Charesse to places like Mozambique. I'm really grateful that while 2%, 2.5% of all missionaries that are deployed go into places that are hostile to the gospel or they, they don't have the gospel, about 20 to 25% of the missionaries that we support are going into places like Saudi Arabia, Qatar, um, and uh, Angola. And my summer with them in Angola was exactly what they, what they said. It was they, that place put the word war and warlord. And even some of you that are in here, whether you're from Liberia or Nigeria or Democratic Republic of Congo, we, some of you have shared your stories with me of, of open war. And although I've never fought in a war as a soldier, I've been in a war in circumstance and seen the marks and scars of that. 
and uh, that's something that you just never ever would want to go to and the fact that adrian and joel are going back there that they've raised their children in this they are heroes man they are heroes and they are they are worthy of uh, every sacrifice that would be on our end to back them so thank you in advance as god speaks to us here today about um about the fact that we're not puppets we're people god doesn't manipulate us he invites us and really today my topic as we continue through the book of romans on this simple gospel and we heard romans 8 two parts of it last couple of weeks now we're into romans 9 to see that we're selected we're not elected and that'll make sense as i open this up to you it was a great moment this morning the holy spirit showed up god spoke a word in service and and we welcome him here this morning if he wants to interrupt what we do but right now i'm going to dive in here and if you would turn to romans chapter 9 verse 1 i want to read this with you i'm going to read through the esv and let me say this is that if romans 8 is the chapter that 50 percent of scholars without being prompted or talking to each other if romans 8 is the chapter as we learned that they said if you were on a desert island and only one chapter of one book of the bible would wash up on shore and it is the most invaluable chapter in the entire bible if romans 8 is the most valuable chapter i would say romans chapter 9 10 and 11 are probably the most confusing probably the most misunderstood probably the most misinterpreted so we're going to have to worship god with all of our mind and there's a lot of intelligence in this room some of you are bi and trilingual some of you have degrees and so it's a challenge to be able to talk to the head and to the heart at the same time but we know that god's going to help us with that romans chapter 9 verse 1 you are selected not elected and you'll understand why as we go through this apostle paul for i am speaking the truth in christ i'm not lying my conscience bears witness in the holy spirit that i have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart the man's distraught why for i could wish that i myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Who's he talking about there? The Jewish nation, the Jewish people. And you understand now because as he goes into verse 4, he says, They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption that Pastor Dylan spoke about so, so eloquently last week, that we are all adopted by God, male, female, full inheritance. To them belongs the glory, that glory that showed up in the temple that you'd for fear of lifting your face because you'd think you'd stare into the very face of god the covenants the promises the giving of the law the worship take the most beautiful music that's ever moved your soul and pour the divine over it that is what the jewish people have given us worship is not original with us it originated when the the, the talent of earth mixed with the glory of heaven and produced for us some of the most moving impactful changing moments you'll ever experience that came from the jewish people from the psalmists from the people that mixed not just the music of earth but the but the praise of heaven together it came from them and the promises to them belong the patriarchs and their race according to the flesh is the christ who is God overall, blessed forever. In other words, the heritage, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, if that were not enough, the very Messiah himself, Jesus Christ, does not come from the earth, does not come from man, but comes from the Jewish people. 
We owe a very great debt. And in fact, I want to bring to your attention on our church website, lolag.org, there's one section that says online church. And if you click on that, there's a very deep article, only eight pages, but it's, it's, it's called, it talks about, it's by one of my former professors and Bible college professors, Walter Kaiser at Gordon-Conwell. And it talks about this idea of replacement theology. It says that every single thing that was originally promised to, to the Jewish people, they no longer matter. And, and it's the Jewish people, uh, the, it's the Christians now. They have replaced the Jewish people. And that is absolutely incorrect. It's poor scholarship. And uh, that article really, really talks to that. And that's what Paul's talking to. He's saying, I'm torn. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Jew of Jews, and yet he's traveling around the ancient world. He's going to Greece, the place of the philosophers and the Greek heroes like Achilles and the Battle of Troy. He's going to Rome, the place of the emperors. He wants to get to the place of the emperors. He's going through uh, all these different places that have no reference point to the Bible, no reference point to the, to the God of heaven. He's starting from scratch, and, he, and he's seeing people come to Jesus, and yet at the same time, the very people who brought these blessings, his heart's broken because no matter how hard he tries to talk to them, no matter how long he tries to explain, it just seems like they just don't listen. And he's saying, I wish that I could be cursed and they'd be blessed because I miss their faces. I miss their voices. I don't want to say goodbye when they go. You see, heaven is real, hell is real, eternity's real, God is real. And Paul devoted his life traveling the ancient world to try and get that message out. I think about so many people, although I'm not Jewish, so many people who I love, so many people who you love, so many people that you and I know that don't share our knowledge or our love for a loving God who sees you at your worst moment and still thinks the best of you, who forgives you of your sins, not because you deserved it or earned it, but because he loves you and he wants to grace and forgive you, that, that says that he is an ever-present help in times of trudgel, that said he'd provide for all your needs if you depend on him and trust him. That God, I wish so much the people that I knew and love would know and love him, but I don't know why they won't listen. My friend Chris, when we were in high school, his parents had a tragic divorce that landed him being thrown in his grandparents' home, which is a disease in the 21st century. It's not enough to raise kids once, now you raise them twice. Now, it's different when you're all living under the same roof as patriarchs and matriarchs. And I think some of the grandparents of today are the heroes for doing those things. But he was there, and his grandparents were the reason that his parents were messed up. They always kept a full stock bar in their home and we used to raid the liquor cabinet like crazy and i'll never forget we took a fifth of, of whiskey and i must have been through probably half of the bottle within 10 to 15 minutes so it was like i was instantly at a state of of blood poisoning of alcohol poisoning they thought that i was joking and i wasn't really in the condition i was so they thought it was funny that they'd sober me up with a shower and so they threw me in the shower got me soaking wet and then when my friend whose house we were at doing all the drinking said, you, my parents are coming home, you need to get out of here. They, they're, the, the most that they did for me, they brought me to the back deck and then they went inside. But before we went, my, my friend, Chris, pushed me down the steps and I landed on my back and I passed out and I began to drown in my vomit. 
And by a miracle, my brother, who normally never even goes through that part of, of the neighborhood, is walking through my friend's backyard and he sees me. He turns me over. I go to the hospital, I have my stomach pumped. And I am here today alive. Why did God do that? I was no better than anyone else. My friend Chris, who I tried talking with after becoming a Christian, just wouldn't hear it. And he always pushed the envelope. And so uh, his favorite drug was LSD. And one day he said to himself, I'm going to catch a Mack truck. And he went into the highway and he caught one. I miss seeing his face. I miss hearing his voice. My childhood friend, Jimmy Siegel, who was neighborhood bully, shot dead in a car. My friend, Sean Skinner, who hung himself. My friend, Craig White, the son of a famous Bible professor, Walter Butler, died of an overdose. My friend, Jeremy Lincoln, who through depression jumped in front of a train. And my friend's mom, Pat Wolanski, when being in Bible college my first year, Bible college, I feel God saying, go tell her about me. Go tell her about me. Go tell her about me. And I was like, no, she won't believe me. No, this is my friends whose house I was drunk in that got pushed down the steps. They know me. They won't listen to me. Go tell it. And I stuffed it and stuffed it. I hopped on a bus. I returned to Bible college. And when I landed there, my friend called me up and said, Paul, my mom's gone. She died in a car accident. That's one of my great regrets in life, that moment of why I didn't listen. I miss seeing their faces, I miss hearing their voices. And it was in that point in my life, I prayed a sincere prayer that really reflects what the Apostle Paul said. I said, God, if me going to hell can make people go to heaven, I'll do it, I'll do it. And granted, I'm a little bit older and wiser now. The one thing I understand is that my life cannot redeem anyone's. It's the heart in the right place, and Paul's heart's in the right place, but both him, you, and I all know it's not our life sacrificed that can save someone else's. It's only Jesus Christ. Listen, I don't know how much or little you've had of the gospel. I don't know how much or little you've had of church. I don't know how much of or little you've had of, of, of religion. But Jesus backs up what he says and, uh, and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Jews are not getting saved any different way than, the, than us as Gentiles are. Everyone has to go through Jesus. He is the gate. He is the doorway. There is no other way except through him. But I miss their faces. I miss hearing their voices. I wish that I could trade places, but I can't. And while we sit here, those are just the people that we do know, but throughout the 1040 window parallel, all the way through the Middle East and into Asia, over 80% of the poorest people in the world living off of $1.42 a day, over one, two, two point some, like 2.2 billion people who have never heard the name of Jesus once to even give it a chance to reject that name are lost. And this Christmas, you and I will spend more money on gifts that will be broken or never even picked up for our families than we will for the gospel of Jesus Christ for the entire year. And what we'll do is, is we'll re-gift God according to our budget that's been modified instead of bringing to him the first fruits so that he could be glorified. And when we talk about raising $90,000 for missions, it's not an unrealistic goal. In fact, if 25 of you today 
gave $3,000, we'd be there. If 50 of you gave $1,800 today, we'd be there. If 75 of you gave $1,200, we'd be there. Hey, if, if 25 of you said, I'll give $58 a week, I can't do it in one hit, we'd be there. If 50 of you gave th uh, $35 a month, you, we'd be there. 75 of you gave $25 a week to missions over a year, we'd be there. This is not an unobtainable goal. And if we really believe, we really, really believe in eternity, if we really, really believe heaven is real, if we really believe that, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, then it's, the time's come for us to put our money where our mouth is. Because I miss their faces. I miss their voices. I can't save them, only Jesus can. And now Paul goes in after his heartbroken moment. He says, I need to, I need to get something across to you that if, if you're not participating in the kingdom, if you're not participating in your salvation, you might pretty much lose it. In other words, you're selected because of your life of faith, not elected because of some special position of entitlement that you should have. Now, when I talk about this, some of you might not even track with it, some of you will, but in the, in the time of the Reformation around the 1600s, there was a major shift. The, the Catholic Church actually means uh, uh, the, the, the universal church. That's literally what Catholic means, universal. When this all started, there were Jews in synagogues who loved Jesus and were willing to die for him. There were Christians in catacombs underground fearing for their life that were willing to die for him. I mean, this was a pure faith, but as it became uh, history continued forward. Whenever there's human beings, things get corrupted, and power corrupts absolutely. When you have absolute power and money, and the Vatican, there are great Catholic people that are out there. The core, if Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, those basic truths are in place. I think some of us as Protestants are going to find things that we're like, oh, we didn't have that right. But that core belief, did Jesus die for your sins? Did he raise from the dead? Is he Lord of your life? Yes, that's a core kind of thing, and God can work out our thinking as we go but but the church became so corrupt that it began to tell people if you give money you can buy somebody out of purgatory and into heaven and they had a, a, a little wrinkle they said every time a coin in the the coffer rings a soul from hell springs and they had that as their slogan and they would go around from town to town give money and imagine if that was our offerings right we're not talking about like missionaries that are going to a war-torn country we'd say hey do you want grandma to get in a better place with eternity give your money to that i mean that's a perversion of of everything so when you look at people like martin luther and john calvin and all these people you have to understand that all of their thinking and stuff is against the backdrop of such a corrupt twisted perverted message that was nothing like the intentional message that Jesus had and they spoke up and they said no uh, Martin Luther said the just shall live by faith it is by grace through faith and, and not by works that you're saved so that nobody can boast and everybody's like wait a second I don't have to buy grandma out of heaven and I'm in for that and then all of a sudden John Calvin came in and he said listen God is sovereign he's above earth he's above man he's above corruption he's above everything you can trust him put your hope in him and and it's, I'm oversimplifying it, but that was the historical backdrop of the twist of the gospel. And Paul, in his day, there were similar accusations. And the Greek and Roman world thought like this. They said, you know what? The gods are in, in the heavens, and it's a, a flit. It's a roll of the dice. One day they can love you. The next day they can hate you. One minute they could do this that's good for you, and the next, for just entertainment, they ruin your life. And it was called fate. It was somewhere between 
It was somewhere between gambling and sadistic, twisted vengeance just for the fun of it. That's how the ancient world thought that Paul was walking into. And so he's writing to the Romans and he's saying, I got to level the field here. You got to understand that God totally values your life of faith. God totally wants you to trust him. God totally is dependent upon you being dependent upon him for this thing to work, for this life of faith to happen. And so he says, let me go back and give you three examples in the Bible. And so he looks at three people. He looks at Abraham and Sarah with the birth of Isaac. He looks at Jacob and es uh, he looks at uh, Isaac and Rebecca with the birth of their twins, Jacob and Esau. And then he gives one last example, which you think doesn't fit, but does. He gives the example of Moses and Pharaoh and the birth of the nation of Israel that he's grieved over. Let's take a look at them real quick. Turn and take a peek here real quick at verse 10. Or verse, I'm sorry, verse 7, verse 7. He says, and not all children of Abraham are children of Abraham because they are, off, are they are because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not children of the flesh who are children of God, but children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Now, that's a really loaded thing. It assumes that every single one of us in here knows the life story of Abraham. So let me snapshot it for you. It's literally a quick click in this. Abraham is in the most pagan, powerful capital of the world, or of the Chaldeans. Later would be known as Mesopotamia, which would be known as Babylon. And as he's there, God starts rattling his family and says, listen, I've got something bigger for you. I've got something better for you. And that's what God does. He stirs your heart. He stirs your life in a direction that's within your reach, but it's not outside of your grasp, but you're going to have to move towards it. And he says, Abraham, you're going to have to move towards this. I want you to leave your country, your kindred. This is what missionaries do. And I want you to go to a land that you uh, that I will show you. In other words, he wasn't being able to see it up front. God doesn't always cross the T's, dot the I's, finish the sentence, do the equation, and say this is a fail-proof plan. You've got to exercise something called faith. And faith requires trust. And trust is very difficult for those of us that are control freaks. I think it's funny, too. Um, so he continues, look at this. I mean, think about Abraham. He, he believes, he, God comes to him and says, go to the country, I'll show you, and he goes. And then God says, it shows up and he says, all of this is gonna be yours. He's like, that's really wonderful, but he's not. Other enemies are in the land. He doesn't see the promise fully fulfilled. And whenever God gives you a promise, and by the way, that's how he always works with you. He gave Abraham no commands. Just one commandment was walk before me. And God comes to him with promise after promise after promise. And Abraham has to walk towards that promise. And just like you and I, we've been given great and precious promises, but we have to walk in them. We have to walk towards them. And we don't have them sure and in the pocket and in the bank and in the bag, but you need to walk walk out this thing called faith, which means that you're going to have to trust God and stop trusting yourself. Because when you trust yourself, you're going to realize you're not strong enough. You're not resourced enough. You're not flawless enough to make those kind of things happen. God's looking for you and me to put out an empty open hand and say, oh God, not that I believe the promise, but I believe you. If you said it, I believe it. You can do it. And God says, that's faith. Abraham tries to work this out, and this is really crazy because here's Abraham, and his wife is 80 years old. 
First of all, how many of you would want to wish a child on an 80-year-old woman? My poor grandma. Grammy, poor Grammy. Imagine Grammy having a baby. She's 80. My mom is 80 right now. Grammy having a baby right now. That's just cruel. And she laughs. The angel says, this time next year, she'll have a baby. And Sarah goes, <laughs> you kidding me? Well, they walk away, and she says, oh, let's, you know, they, they, they come to them a couple of times, and the first time they come, they say it, and she's like, yeah, right, Abraham, yep, okay, sure, God gave you that promise. She says, tell you what I'm going to do, I'm going to give you this servant of mine, Hagar, she's this Egyptian woman, and, you know, you sleep with her, and she'll have a baby, and Abraham's like, okay. Yeah, and if I could say this, if you're an old man, and you're messing around with a young woman, you need to stop it. As I was praying for the service, I felt this in my heart. There's someone in here or someone listening on this podcast. You're an older man and you're messing around with a young woman. The last thing the world needs is some girl getting pregnant with some guy who's not going to be there or isn't going to be there long enough to raise them. The world needs fathers. Stop it. So, but catch, amen. It's okay to say amen to stuff. Let's, let's hope that it results in change. I just felt in my heart to say that. So what does Abraham do? He tries to accomplish the promises of God through the means of the flesh. And don't miss this. They're both working it all wrong because what Sarah's doing is called manipulation. And what Abraham is doing is participation. And the two of them produce a son, but it's not the son of promise. His name is Ishmael. He's a wild donkey. He's created so much grief and madness in the world. God blessed him but he wasn't the son of promise. And when the angel shows up, hey, this time next year, God's going to do something for you. She goes, and the angel says, why'd she laugh? I think God isn't really entertained with our lack of belief. I think sometimes he might even be irritated with it. Why won't you trust me? Have I not proven myself? Have I not watched over you enough? I mean, the problem in our world is that it's filled with a lot of evil and a lot of evil people and a lot of evil momentum and a lot of, but God isn't the source of that. God doesn't point at everything and say, I make everything good. Look at it and say it's good. No, he can't, you can't say that to a child who's been molested, to a woman who's been raped, to a man's family who's been murdered. You can't do that. But the Bible says that God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And so finally, Abraham decides, I'm going to obey, I'm going to trust, I'm going to believe. And even Larry, uh, uh, Sarah, who, who laughed, she gives birth to Isaac. And no sooner does she have the promise of God, God says, now I want you to take that child up on a mountain, I want you to take a knife, and I want you to kill him. I want you to sacrifice the very blessing. See, I've come to learn something about God. Sacrifice is not sacrifice unless it's sacrificial. And the whole system that God set up for salvation comes through sacrifice. Because if it means nothing to you, you'll do nothing for it. And Abraham, Abraham grieving, goes up the mountain, carries the fire, carries the knife, has his son carrying the wood, and he's saying, Dad, where's the animal? He goes, don't worry, the Lord will provide, the Lord will provide. But I'm sorry, he raises that knife up and he's about to do it. And there are many of us, when it comes to our faith, when God puts his finger on something that we love or is precious to us, and he says, give it to me, and we won't even pack our bags to go to the mountain. And here's Abraham, man of faith, saying, 
I don't know how I ever had a kid, but if you and the angels of the Lord screams to him and says, Abraham, Abraham, do not touch the child. Now the Lord knows that you will obey him. A life of faith. A life of faith. You are selected because of your life of faith. You're not elected because of a position, a title. And what's interesting is God says, in that place, it's not a name of God. You ever heard Jehovah Jireh is a name of God? It's not a name of God. It says, because it says, for in that place, the Lord shall provide. Abraham called that place Jehovah Jireh, the Lord shall provide. It's not God he's calling Jehovah Jireh. It's the place he's calling. You see, the place of blessing for our life is not in the blessing that God pours on us. It's the sacrifice we're willing to offer up to him. And we wonder why we have financial troubles when we let Jesus be Lord of our shame and Lord of our sin, but not Lord of our finances. Where we listen to the call for missions, but we never participate in it. Sacrifice is not sacrifice unless it's sacrificial. And God, when it was his turn, held back nothing and gave the very best of his son. And he expected nothing less from Abraham. I don't know if I could have done it that way. But he turns now and he says, listen, listen, this doesn't, doesn't end with Abraham. Look at Isaac and Rebekah. They give birth to Jacob and Esau. And listen to this. I just noticed this this morning. He said, and also, verse 10, look at this. Not only so, but also Rebekah, who had conceived children by one man. Let me just make a side note of this. Every, all these patriarchs are a train wreck. Jacob has two wives with 20 kids in 30 districts. Um, Abraham has uh, multiple kids with multiple women in multiple contexts. But the Bible goes out of its way to say that the child of promise, the, the family, the child that was the deliverance of the promise was someone who had children by one man. So what are you saying, Pastor Paul? Are you saying that, that I'm a second-rate citizen because I've been divorced? Are you saying I'm a second-rate citizen because I have children from different people? No. But what I am saying is, is that it's God's plan that a family is in covenant relationship and stays together. This kid, their parents were like, oh, son, don't, listen, Abraham and Abraham, Abraham and, and, and Sarah poured into their kid's life to say, listen, don't, don't do it like me, son. Trust God. Follow God. Don't do it like me, son. When God says it, respond to it right away. Don't do it like me, son. Just pursue him. Don't, don't, you, don't, you can be that faithful individual. And if you're on the front end of this journey, you can do it. You can save yourself for that person that you marry. You can save yourself from, from a lot of different problems if you commit and you say, I choose my love and I've chosen my choice and I'll stick with it. He goes out of his way to say she had children by one man our forefather Isaac, that they were not yet born and had not done either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of the works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger, and it was written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Now, don't miss what just jumped in here. It's in verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had not done anything, neither good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Now here's the problem, is that many of our reformed brothers and sisters and many different teachers that are out there that are incredible with different perspectives misinterpret, as I said, this section, these three chapters, and even this verse, because it seems like God's saying that you're going to be either the bad kid or the good kid before you're even born. The, the game's rigged. 
I hated playing cards with my brother. I would get a two and a six and a one and a four and a, you know, an uno or in cards. And then all of a sudden with him, he had draw two, draw four, wild card, draw four, reverse, skip, and four aces, royal flush. And I was like, what in the world's going on? And then finally I said, hey, shuffle the deck. I learned why you shuffle the deck, right? But it almost seems like God's fixed the deck. Like, what does it matter? Because it's just going to, I'm going to get my hand handed to me. I can't win. There are a couple of takeaways. My son Ethan, I was talking to him about this message. He said something brilliant, but him and my, him and my wife said this, but what are the takeaways you shouldn't take away from this message and from this? It's this, one of them was that you shouldn't take away from what we're reading here to say it doesn't matter if you want Jesus, if he doesn't want you, it's all over. That is a lie. Because then we have to say that Jesus is lying when he says that it's God's will that none should perish, but all should come to eternal life. In other words, God doesn't pick a stack and says, you're destined to be damned, and he picks another stack and says, you're destined to be saved, and it doesn't matter where it goes, no matter how you do it, that's just the way it is. You see, he's looking at these examples of Abraham, Esau, and Jacob, and Pharaoh, and Moses as not who they are, but what type of people they are, people of faith. And skip down very quickly with me to verse... 30. What shall we say then that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that it is a righteousness by faith, but that Israel who pursued it by the law would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching it? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. What is it about these people? Why is he using them as examples? Why is the doctrine of predestination and a fixed game wrong? It's because these are people who live their life by faith. God said, Abraham, go here, and he went. God said to Abraham, you're going to have a kid. He said, I'll trust you. God said, sacrifice that blessing up to me, and he didn't hold back. God said to Jacob and Esau's mother, listen, something's going to happen here. The firstborn is normally the next king of the tribe, the patriarch. He says, but it ain't going to happen that way. The older will serve the younger, and Jacob will be the child of promise, not Esau. And normally when that first child came out, they tied a thread on it in case when there were twins, if it pulled back and the other one came out, they were able to distinguish which one was the firstborn. It was a right of inheritance that came there. And God said, I'm tired of saying that you're privileged and elected. You're selected because of your life of faith. And you look at Esau. Esau did all kinds of things. He comes in and he's hungry and he says, oh, oh, I just, I'm so hungry. Jacob's, Jacob, who had his own issues, says, I'll give you a cup of soup if you give me your inheritance. And he trades, he trades his place with God for a cup of Campbell's soup just because he's hungry. How much do you value your salvation? How cheap, how low is your price? Esau. Jacob, Jacob had another problem in that he constantly tried to manipulate the outcome like his grandparents did. He was a deceiver, supplanter, manipulator. But finally, Esau did everything wrong. In fact, he found out that his parents despised the Canaanite people, so just for spite's sake, he went out and married one. 
You see, God is looking for people that not only say they have faith, but live out their faith, walk out their faith, talk out their faith, abide in their faith, that don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, because God's Spirit can dwell in us if we invite Him in. God's sovereignty, listen, God, and then he goes into this, this whole bout, and he says this, and Boaz, you can come up, but he says this to them. He says, listen, let's talk about Moses. God said this about Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, but I will, I will bring wrath upon whom I have wrath. And then he goes into this whole dissertation about Pharaoh and how Pharaoh's heart was hardened by God. And it almost seems like then he goes into this discussion of two different vessels, and he says, so what if, and that's the key, he says, what if God created a vessel to destroy it? Who are you to question God? You see, if we believe that God is God, that means he's sovereign. It means that while you and I don't know everything, even when we think we're convinced we're right and we got it down, you don't know everything. God does, though. Just when you think you're powerful enough to step into that situation and be the hero, or as if that person wronged somebody you love, that you could physically deal with that situation, you come to find out that there's somebody out there that always knows how to fight better than you, because you're not all powerful. Just when you think, you say, I'm a good person, and then God stands next to you like he did with Isaiah, and the angels cry, holy, 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 the man that was a prophet of God already in ministry for six chapters all of a sudden says, I'm undone. I'm unclean. If God is God, then he is trustworthy. What if God did it that way? But that's not what Paul's saying. What Paul's saying is this. He wants everyone to be saved. And it's only through Jesus' sacrifice, not yours, that it can be done. But this is how you do it. You don't do it perfectly. What's the saying we have in our church? It's not perfection, it's what? It's not, it's not perfection, it's direction. I may not be who I ought to be, but thank God I'm not who I used to be. Abraham follows it. Jacob pursues it. Esau doesn't. Sarah laughs. In the Bible, when it talks about this, hardening of Pharaoh's heart, what's interesting is, is that it, it says it 20 times over 10 chapters with the different plagues. Moses comes in and says, let my people go, but Pharaoh pridefully says no. And then afterwards it says that his heart was moldable, fixable. But then afterwards it, it became fixed and firm. And it goes through this pattern where Moses uh, says, deliver the people. Pharaoh was stiff-necked. God sent a plague. Pharaoh became moldable, and then finally he hardened his heart, and this went back and forth for 10 plagues, back and forth and back and forth. And finally, what does God do? It says that God began to harden Pharaoh's heart. You see, it's not a fixed game. It's not a rigged stack. God was responding to Pharaoh the way that he was responding to God. And God responds to us the way we respond to him. And that's what a life of faith is all about. A life of faith is one that says, God, I don't understand all the answers, but you don't have to dot the I's and cross the T's. You just give me a promise, God. Give me a promise. Some of you, you've had God speak promises into your life, and you're like, where is he? Where's this promise? Whatever. And he's still looking for you to do what he called you for at the beginning, to just walk before him, to trust him. You're saying, I don't have any control. You were never meant to have any control. I can't change the situation. You'll never be able to. What you need is a promise from God. 
When was the last time God spoke a promise? Because you don't need one. There's a whole book filled with precious promises that says you can be holy as I'm holy. One that says that God says, don't worry about the loss of your job or the bankruptcy of your business, the foreclosure of your home. If you'll walk before me and stop complaining before me, if you'll walk before me and stop taking control, if you'll trust me, I won't say that it's good. I'm not gonna ask you to tell me it's good, but I want you to know that I have a way that I work all things out for good. That's your God. Stand to him this morning here. And we're going to sing to him before we dismiss. You know what the word hallelujah means? It means every last bit of me to you, God. See, we say the word hallelujah, but I don't think we really get it. A true hallelujah means that I own nothing, you own everything. A true hallelujah says all of me for God, all of me for Yahweh. Can you give them all of you today? Can we do it across this room? Let's lift our hands. Father, we give you our life this morning. We give you our life this morning, all of us for you.